Ephesians chapter 5, I should say it, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 through verse 9. Been working our way through the book of Ephesians, uh, really since September, and we're nearing the end of it. Just a few more weeks left to go. The title of the message this morning is this. I'm going to have to explain it to you, but here's the title. Futility and Reward. Futility and Reward. What do I mean by this? Futility and Reward. This idea of futility and reward is a theme that we see occurring throughout the Scripture. This is not a theme that's unique to Ephesians chapter 6. This is a theme we see really from the Old Testament all the way to the end of the Bible. And this is what I mean by futility and reward. It is the willingness on behalf of the believer to do what doesn't pay in order to earn greater reward. To do what doesn't pay because of an already perhaps received greater reward. Do something that's futile, waste of time, because of a knowledge that a greater reward is coming. And we're going to see this in this passage, both written to servants as well as masters. And this understanding of futility and reward is critically important for this passage. And let me just help us maybe understand why. This passage is really, really uncomfortable. Why is it uncomfortable? It's talking about slaves, masters. What we've done over time, because this passage is terribly uncomfortable, is we've reduced it to something else. We said, well, this is employees and employers. I don't think so. Because Greek, in fact, does have terms for employee and employer. These are servants, slaves, and masters. And we're going to discover something very important about the power of the gospel in the culture we live in. The power of the gospel is powerful enough even for the worst of situations and the worst of circumstances. Here's what we tend to do is we minimize the brokenness we see in culture because it makes us uncomfortable. We don't want to talk about the Bible mentioning slaves and masters because that feels weird and uncomfortable. What we don't realize we've done when we minimize the brokenness the Bible is not embarrassed about, we inadvertently minimize the gospel that seeks to intervene in that brokenness. What we unintentionally do is say, well, the gospel is good enough for difficulties between a boss and his employee But the gospel is certainly not big enough and powerful enough to intervene in the midst of slavery and mastership. The Bible is not embarrassed. The Bible said, oh yeah, the gospel can in fact occur in these very broken places. So we're going to talk about futility and reward in regard to these very important relationships that occurred especially in the first century of Rome, but we have seen occurring throughout human history. The gospel here is going to actually intervene and say, I want to inform servants and masters about the power of the gospel in the midst of these relationships, which by definition are marked by brokenness. Futility and reward, verses 5 through 8. Futility and reward while powerless. Futility and reward while powerless. We should first make note in this passage about slaves, servants, or bond servants, depends on your translation, and masters. The servants receive the bulk of the verses, all but the last verse. 
Verses 5 through 8 are discussing how the gospel shows up in the life of a servant. And verse 9 tells us how the gospel shows up in the life of a master. Futility and reward while powerless. We're very aware of an illustration that we may even speak of from time to time. I feel like I'm a hamster on its wheel. A hamster on its wheel. Two hamsters are on a wheel. One on each of their own wheels. One is running much faster than the other. Who's ahead? It's futile. The only time I've seen a hamster maximize that situation is he figured out, run as fast as he can, then stop suddenly, and he gets a good spin going. At least he gets a ride out of it. But for the most part, this idea of a hamster on a wheel is this. We work hard, but we're going nowhere. Working hard, toiling, and going nowhere. That is the life of a servant. That is the life of a slave in first century Rome. Slaves worked hard, and all of their work, all of their skill benefited the master alone. You must understand this about first century servanthood in Rome. Servants maybe worked in the household, maybe worked in agriculture, maybe worked in various places, but there would also be servants who were professionals. There were doctors who were servants, and there were accountants who were servants, and there were important officials who were servants. However, one thing was true of all of the servants. Their work benefited the master only. There was no benefit to the servant. All of their work would be hamster wheel work. And we must also understand in first century Rome so that we don't sanitize it, the working conditions of the servants would be varied. Certainly there were many servants who experienced a somewhat decent life, although they had no freedom. But there are also many, many stories of first century servants and slaves who were treated horrifically. One servant took something from his master, and his master removed his hands and hung them around his neck on a chain. And there's no recourse. There's no justice for a servant. Their life is futile, and their life is defined by powerlessness. Look what the Bible says to the folks living under these terrible conditions. Bond servants, obey your masters with fear and trembling as you would Christ. So what the gospel says is, listen, to serve your master, what reward will you get? Absolutely nothing. But if you serve Christ, what reward, what reward is there? The Bible is quite clear. Service to Christ is rewarded. Certainly we receive eternal life by faith alone, the Bible is quite clear. Faithfulness to Christ, in Christ, is rewarded in eternity. And Paul is saying here, the gospel is powerful enough to give you strength that in the midst of futile toil to nonetheless receive reward. Why in the world would I serve Christ? Because Philippians chapter 2 tells us what Christ was like. He says, he who was God and is God, what did he do? Humbled himself taking on the form of a man, even the form of a servant, being obedient unto death. So Paul is saying here, don't substitute one master for another. We recognize Christ is our master, but he is a master of a whole other kind. He is a master who is a slave. There's not one experience we would have in the futility of our life that Christ cannot readily say, I am in that with you and know what that is like. He is the one who is a servant to everyone, 
And he is also the one who rewards. He says this, Serve Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. So you're working hard. You want your boss to notice. Or in first wrench, you want your master to notice. Maybe he'll give you a little bit better assignment and get you out get you indoors rather than being outdoors or work that doesn't take so much physical labor. So you're working hard to be noticed, but guess what? Your master doesn't notice. Why doesn't the master notice? Number one, he's not there. He's busy off enjoying the fruits of your labor. Or if he is there, he certainly doesn't care. Of course you're working hard. That's your job. Why should, you're a servant. That's what you do. Why should I recognize your work? So the difficulty with trying to please the people around us, right, trying to please these people over us, is the fact that if they do notice, they won't recognize it for what it really is. Jesus is wholly different. He says, I am with you in every moment. When you made the good decision and did the right thing in the secret of your heart in that secret place, I was there and I saw it and I was cheering you on. And I will reward for it. Serve Christ as our True master is the one who truly has all the authority over us, not seeking instead to merely try and be good to be noticed. Be bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from our heart, working as unto the Lord. I should say it this way, especially here in modern day times in the United States, when we think about different ways of living, we generally will ask this question. You're expecting or asking me to live a particular way based on what the Bible teaches and what the gospel says is true. My question is this, does it work? Does it work? If I serve Christ out of a full heart of Him alone, will it pay off for me? Of course it will. How does it say it's going to pay off for you? You will be rewarded. Your work will not be futile. What is the reward we receive? Jesus. We will receive, we will be in Christ. We're going to go and live with Christ forever. So we got to understand something about the gospel. We ask, does this kind of living work? And the gospel asks, is Jesus enough for you? You want me to serve my boss? You know what kind of a clod he is? Okay, I'll serve him. But I'm assuming then, because I'm serving Christ in my work and killing it, that Christ will then intervene in such a way that I will get a promotion, right? I'm working hard in my family. I'm serving my children and my wife, and sometimes I don't know if things are going well, but I'm going to work hard, and so God at some point is going to bless me, and they will finally all recognize how right I have been all along. You're trying not to laugh. You're sitting next to your spouse. Don't look at them now. There's a pet peeve of mine, this will get me in trouble, and I know that entertains you. I won't say all, I'll just say most, but you watch a Christian movie. That is the theme of most Christian movies I've seen. Guy has a bad deal go on, whatever it is. His car breaks down, he loses a leg, I don't know what it is. Then he finds the Lord, praise the Lord, happy with that. He makes a couple of good decisions, and in 90 minutes, his entire life has been restored. And we read a passage like that, well, that's what, obviously, that's what it means. If you serve the Lord and say, he's going to intervene in such a way 
uh, that's called the prosperity gospel, and that's heresy. If you think you can be good enough to get God to be good to you, you've missed the cross. When we think we, if we do God's things in God's way that he will somehow bless us, we've missed the gospel. When we do things God's way and do things for the Lord, we do it because we've gained Christ. And what else could we possibly want? Let me read to you a couple of people who figured this out over in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 32. You're going to love this. If you've read it before, pretend like it's your first time. Bible talking about some people who figured out they want to do God's things God's ways. And here's the payoff. Are you ready? You're going to be really glad you came to church this morning. And what shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. In fact, women even received back their dead by resurrection. However, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. He's saying this, These folks were faithful to God, and their hope was in their martyrdom, in their torture, in their homelessness. One day, Christ would appear and make it all worth it. This is the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is to walk this earth knowing that Christ is enough. And if that's not true, there's no hope for those who find themselves in servitude and slavery. There's futility and reward while powerless Because we can be faithful to Christ even in powerless situations and experience reward. Not because we think God will somehow magically deliver us from our difficulty. He might. It's not because you did anything good. But the reward is Christ. We will spend eternity with Christ. And when we get there, we will assume that he has overpaid us. Futility and reward while powerless. We seek to serve Christ even in our powerless situations because Christ is enough. Question for you, where are you powerless in your life? You can think probably of a dozen situations in your life right now. You say, I have no control over this. This is horrible. I hate it. I'm powerless in it. I have no idea what to do. Anything I might do is going to be completely futile. First thing we have to understand from Ephesians chapter 6 is this. God sees it fully. God knows of it fully. Christ is in it with you completely. And then you say, well, how can anything good come out of this powerless situation? And the Bible calls us in the difficulty 
of the powerlessness and futility to simply set our heart on him and say, okay, Christ, you've got this. I will trust you in this. I'll take my reward from you. I will walk in faithfulness even in this. For those in the first century, it was even servitude. In our lives, we may find a number of places where we have to simply say, okay, Christ, I'll walk with you in it. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what this is all about. But I'll take you. Futility and reward while powerless. Well, how does this apply to those who have power? Look with me at verse 9. Glance down, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. I'll just reread it. Masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Futility and reward while powerful. On the one hand, we have futility and reward while powerless, and now we have futility and reward while powerful. January 1st, 1929, Rose Bowl, in the Rose Bowl Coliseum, Wrong Way Rigels. Anybody heard of this guy? YouTube, it's on YouTube, it's hilarious. Except for him. So the other team fumbled the ball. I think he played for Cal, I think it was the Golden Bears. Maybe Georgia Tech, I can't remember who they were playing against. The other team fumbled. So Wrong Way Rigels picks it up, and he gets turned around. What's he do? 69 yards the wrong way. Doesn't run towards his end zone or whichever one he was supposed to go to. He runs the wrong way. The crowd is cheering. His players are running along yelling at him. He, has no, he thinks they're all ecstatic. He's going to score a touchdown. He has not, oh, no idea. They're yelling at him. Turn around, you moron. Finally, the quarterback convinces him he's going the wrong way at the very end. Uh, not the quarterback, they were on defense, but either way. Some guy convinces him. He stops at the three-yard line and starts to turn around to head the right direction and meets all the defenders he has tackled on the one-yard line. They go on to bravely lose the game by one point. So slaves may feel like they're on the hamster wheel. They're running fast and they're going nowhere. Masters. They feel like they're running as fast as they possibly can. They're in the fast car, in the fast lane, and it's full tilt, and they have no idea they're going the wrong way. So while slaves in their futility know they're going nowhere, masters in their futility have no idea they're going the wrong way. As fast as they can, making full headway, the wrong direction. And Jesus mentions this over in Matthew chapter 19, just to look at it so you understand where we're coming from. Matthew 19, verse 16, we read of this account. A young man came up to Jesus and he said this, Teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus said this, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter into life, keep the commandments. And the young man says, Which ones? And Jesus says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbors yourself. Well, Jesus lost me like two in. The young man replied to him, kept all those. Next. Find it interesting that Jesus didn't argue that point. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, sell all your possessions, give them to, poor, to the poor, then you will have treasure in heaven. Remember, what is that? Reward. Come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away very sad because he had a great 
amount of possessions. And Jesus said this to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, in fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. You say, well, how would you get a camel through an eye of a needle? Two options, a broken needle or a very messy camel. It's disgusting. That's gross. Jesus is actually telling us here that masters and the wealthy are at a disadvantage to the poor and the enslaved because they have no idea their life is futile. The slaves know it. Everything about the culture around them tells them their life is futile. The masters think their life is not futile. And they're at a significant spiritual disadvantage because they don't know the futility of their lives. And what the Bible calls the masters to do over in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, is this. Behave towards your slaves the way that God has called the, the slaves to behave towards Christ. What? Most masters would be saying, I'm sorry, what? We're asking you to behave towards your servants the same way the servants obey towards Christ. Masters do the same to them. Serve your servants the way they are seeking to serve Christ who served them. Masters, do the same to your servants. That would make no sense. No master in first century Rome would understand what he's saying. Well, you want me to serve my servants? You understand they're the servant, right? I mean, do you understand how the job description works? The Bible here is saying, no, you need to understand. They're at the advantaged position spiritually. You need to learn something from them. Learn from them how to serve the same way in which they are serving Christ. Serve your servants the, in the same humble manner that Christ is served by them. And then he threatens them. Look, he threatens the masters. Look at it, verse 9. Stop your threatening. He threatens them about their threatening. Every night, the Bible is telling the masters, your servants go into their bed. They get down on their knees. And they come before Christ, their master. And they say to Christ, their master, Christ, I have sought in my heart to serve you today. Decide now today between me and my master. The Bible is saying to the, to the master, you need to be aware I'm hearing that prayer. I have decided between you and your servant, and I'm not deciding for you. And you have thought with your great possessions and power that everything is going for you. You have no idea that everything is, in fact, against you. Their prayer will indeed be answered. God will, in fact, decide between them and you, and you ought to make sure you're on the same side of eternity as your servants. Otherwise, your life of power and privilege and prestige and wealth will be nothing but futile. In fact, I would suggest the comparison here is to say your servant's life is much less futile than yours. Jesus is above you, and he has opinion about your relationship with your servants. Jesus looks at those in power and those in privilege and those who have influence and those who have wealth, and he says, Jesus is above you. He has an opinion about you and those around you, and his opinion is cross-shaped. 
And he's asking us in privilege and position and power and authority to recognize the futility of those things and approach our relationship with every person in our life in a manner that is likened to a cross. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. Masters, do the same to your servants. That is, serve them in the way they are serving Christ. Know that Christ is both your master and theirs, and there is no partiality with him. Why does he say that? In this life, in this place, there is partiality. Let's just call a spade a spade. Is there partiality? You're undecided? There is. If you haven't seen it, that means you're part of it. I mean that as nicely as possible. But it's a fact. This world is filled with broken people, and broken people are, by default, partial. And, and Paul is saying, the Bible is saying, Jesus is not partial. When you get to heaven, you don't get to say, well, how, about, how big a donation do you need, Jesus? We'll hook this up. Have my people call your people, and why don't we just handle this business? And he'll say, I'm, so, I'm sorry? Who created your checkbook? He is not partial. He will look in our lives for it to be cross-shaped as his life was. Have this question for us. This is a fair question, I think. Where are you powerful? Where do you have influence? Where do you have strength? Where do you have resources? Where in your life are those situations where the things go the way you want them to go? Nothing wrong with that. Praise the Lord for that. But just keep in mind, according to this passage, God sees, God knows. And those things we think make us not futile, he says those things are futile. What brings significance and reward is a heart set on him, not on those things. And we have to recognize, as those who have places of, of power and influence and resource, we are disadvantaged spiritually. By default, we will tend to think we have significance because of these positions of influence. Futility and reward. In powerlessness, futility and reward while powerful. One last thing. We're going to close on this. One last thing to talk about this. Futility and reward. Here's a fair question for us in the Bible. Is God fair? Is God good? I think this is worth mentioning just for a minute or two. It should disturb us to some degree that the Bible mentions slavery, and we may on one hand say, why doesn't he just begin this passage this way? Bond servants, tell your masters to get a clue and free you. It bothers us that he didn't merely just say, this is a wrong relationship, so therefore abandon it. And we have to understand how the Bible approaches this important issue. First of all, in 1 Timothy 1, chapter 10, in a list of several significant and horrific sins, one of the sins that listed along liars and perjurers and uh, the sexually immoral is this, enslavers, man-stealers. The New Testament is quite clear. To take someone against their will and enslave them is an abhorrent evil. But we also have to understand something else about the Scripture, and we learn this from Jesus in Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 3. Let me just read it, and I'll just try to apply it to this situation. The Pharisees, they came up to him, and they tested him. And they said, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he said, no. I'm summing up. No. And they came back to him because they had won the Bible trivia uh, game at their fifth grade class. 
They said, well, then why did Moses command that a wife could be given a certificate of divorce and send her away? What did they just do? They quoted the Bible. Well, Moses said it was okay to get a divorce. So what's your problem? You don't like the Bible, Jesus? And Jesus says, now, I've lost it. I'm sorry. Moses, because your hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce. But from the beginning, it wasn't this way. What he, what's he saying? Listen, you guys were divorcing. And so as a result, what God did is he said, listen, you need to, to treat everyone with respect and allow a woman, if you're going to abandon her, at least allow her to, to buy food. Because that's what they would do. They would abandon a woman and she couldn't buy food. She couldn't live anywhere. And so what he said, because of the hardness of your heart, I at least intervened so that therefore a woman wouldn't starve to death in your midst. What do we understand from this? The Bible will sometimes regulate those things which it does not condone. Does the Bible condone divorcing? The answer is no. Does divorce happen? Yeah, it does, by the way. So the Bible, what it's saying here is, listen, the Bible is not saying, yeah, get a divorce. What the Bible is saying, don't kill somebody over it. This is what is supremely important about the Bible. The Bible was given to us in the midst of actual human culture. And what it was determined to do was show us God's redemptive ways, even in the middle of all of our brokenness, all of our rebellion, all of our futility. The Bible shows us that, in fact, we can encounter the gospel in the midst of broken human relationships, up to and even, even including slavery. The Bible encourages slaves in 1 Corinthians 7 when they have the opportunity to gain their freedom. And in fact, Paul even encourages the master Philemon to release his servant Onesimus on account of his conversion. Maybe an illustration will help. Maybe. I don't know. Or, or it'll make it more confusing. You're welcome. So let's say a house is on fire, and somebody's in the house, and the house is burning down. Help, help, you say. Or somebody else says, so it's not personal. Firefighter comes in. He says, Okay, here's what we do. I've got a spare mask and a tank. I'm going to give you the spare mask and tank, and we're going to get out of here. Sound like a good plan? Well, no. We would say, listen, I'm morally opposed to fires, Mr. Fireman. What we need to do is actually have this fire out. What's the fireman say? Good idea. Get right on it. But why don't we survive this and get a mask on and get out? So what the gospel does is it comes into the midst of our broken human situation and says, here's what good news looks like in all of these broken situations. And we say, well, it shouldn't be this way. And Jesus says, you're right. I'm coming back. It's going to be off the chain. I'm sorry. It's going to be awesome. And we say, well, it shouldn't be this way. I know. But the gospel can provide hope even in the midst of these horrible, broken situations. Think about it this way. Christ was on the cross with a thief. The thief turned to him and said, Christ, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And from that moment on, the thief never experienced any more pain in his hands, in his feet, in his side, or his lungs, right? The last six hours of his life were pain-free. He just sat up there singing his praise songs. Was it fair that that thief was on a cross? Well, certainly he admitted he committed a crime. I don't know that there's a crime a human commit, can commit that requires a cross, though. 
He admitted to being a thief. I don't think you kill people on a cross because they stole something. So Jesus says to this thief, in the midst of this uh, terrible injustice, you will be with me in paradise. But notice Jesus doesn't take him off that cross. He puts his hope in the place where there is real hope. And this is the way the Bible is written. It brings the hope of the gospel in the midst of the most broken possible situations. The hope would be that the gospel would bring redemption to those, but even when it doesn't, it allows us when we have injustices on us to live in the power of the gospel. I lost my place. I'm sorry. I'm, you thought I was really thinking deeply about something. Two things, and we'll close with this. In regard to those of us who have the privilege of living in power and influence and resource and luxury, the question will not be whether or not we took the mask on and we took the tank on and we're willing to get out of the fire. The question will be, did we care that the house was on fire? The question will be, hey, that house is on fire. That, that's not right. Or since we don't find ourselves in that fire and in that suffering, will we say, well, whew, glad I'm not in there. Or worse yet, I knew they shouldn't have lived in there. I mean, I didn't choose. Everybody who knows anything would never live in there because obviously every person who's ever lived has the same access to resource and choice that we do, Right? Well, they shouldn't have never lived in there. Of course they're dealing with that fire. All of us will stand before Jesus. The powerless will stand before Christ. The question is, in those areas where we have powerlessness, do we trust Christ to make it right? He will make them all right. For those of us who have power and influence, the question will say, stand, when we stand before Christ will be this. You saw th some things that weren't right. Did you serve them? Did you intervene? Did you recognize that their problem is your problem? That's what he called the masters to do. He said, you recognize that their futility is your futility? See, the problem is the default condition of the heart, and this is what we see in Ephesians chapter 6, the default position of the heart will always divide along classes. We will always divide along uh, our class of economics. We will divide along our class of education. We will divide along our class of uh, where we live and the kinds of things we do for work and uh, the kinds of uh, people we enjoy being around along our uh, ethnic classes. We will divide, we will divide, and we will divide. And we will always validate our experience based on the conversations that we have with all of the other people around us that we have divided unto. And then we will look at the experience of people outside of our sphere of influence and say, why do they live there? Why would they ever do that? And the Bible is saying, no, 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 that's not how the gospel works in community. We intentionally leave our classes and our groups, and we say, I want to understand what it's like to, for that light person. What does the gospel look like in, in the lives of people outside of my particular sphere? John chapter 4. Jesus leaves heaven. 
I don't know if you know this or not, he was kind of in charge of everything. He leaves heaven and comes to earth. I don't know if you know this or not. I mean, it's the only thing you've ever known, but earth is kind of a dump. I mean, it's nice. We vacuumed in here. But when you compare it to heaven, it's kind of a dump. We sort of ruined it with sin, didn't we? So Jesus comes to earth. Certainly, if he's going to come to earth, you're going to go to the nicest places. You know, like if you're going to visit a third world country, at least you're going to stay in a five-star hotel, right? John chapter 4, where does he go? Samaria. Well, certainly if you're going to go to Samaria, you're going to hang out with somewhat religious people, right? No, he hangs out with somebody who isn't Jewish. Worse yet, someone who's sort of half Jewish in the worst possible way. Well, if he's going to hang out with sort of half-Jewish people in the worst possible way, certainly he's going to hang out with a dude, right? No, scandal of scandals, he hangs out with a woman. Well, if he's going to hang out with a woman who's sort of a half-Jew in the worst possible way, in the worst possible neighborhood, certainly he's going to hang out with a woman who is cross-stitching Old Testament verses onto pillowcases. I'm not saying that's bad. If you're into that, cross-stitch away. I have to ask this question, though. It just occurs to me again. This will get me in trouble. You're welcome. If you stick yourself with a needle while cross-stitching and you say a bad word, does it ruin the cross-stitch? <laughs> for something for you to think about? I don't know. Totally off topic. Go, come on, back, Samaria. Was this a religious woman? She wasn't married. She'd gone through five husbands. And now she'd given up on the marriage thing. Just going to live with a guy. And before you decide she's a slut, keep in mind she's dead if she doesn't live with these guys. So tell me what choice she has. She starves to death on a corner. What choice would you make? And Jesus goes to her. And he tells her, you are so wicked. You know the story? What's he say? I will give you water. You will never thirst again. Worst neighborhood. Completely other side of the sphere ethnically. Completely other side of the sphere morally. And he affirms her need for grace. That's the job of those who have Christ. Not to divide. Not to go to our own. Not to affirm to one another that the way we live is the way it ought to be. But to walk someplace where we shouldn't be, to talk to someone we shouldn't talk to and say, you need hope. You need the grace of Christ. I would challenge us in this regard when you're watching the news and you hear stories of injustice to watch what your heart does. He shouldn't have ran from the police. You ever said that? Of course, they live in that neighborhood. And that thought ever crossed your mind? 
They should get off the street, go to college. How do you run that through Ephesians 6? How do you run that through John chapter 4? What would Jesus have done? Walked into the neighborhood, sat down, said, let's have a drink. Break those walls down. As long as those walls exist in the body of Christ, we're going nowhere. Because Christ doesn't believe in those walls. This isn't just a master-servant thing. This is any division in the body of Christ is futile. And we must repent and confess, say, Lord, there are walls in my heart. I want to be with my own. And it's time we walk away from that and say, you know what? No. It's time to serve others the way Christ served me, with an open heart that reaches out in service and gratitude for Christ. If you're in powerless situations, which all of us are, this is our hope, Christ rewards. If you are in a powerful situation where you have resource and influence and privilege, Christ will hold you to account for the stewardship of that.